You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Snoring can affect people of all ages, including children, although it's more common in adults aged 40 to 60, with twice as many men than women who snore. Research shows that the bed partners of the estimated 20 million snorers in the UK lose on average two hours of sleep every night, and the long-term impact of this form of nocturnal torture is a situation all too familiar to Marianne Davy from the British Snoring and Sleep Apnea Association. We know ourselves that if we only have one night of disturbed sleep, how dreadfully we function the next day. We're tired, we're irritable, which makes us more prone to arguing. So all of these things collectively go to make a really bad day. But if you think about the bed part of a snorer who perhaps has this every night of the week for months, maybe even years, we can imagine how dreadfully ill they feel because of this sleep deprivation. Marianne, we're encouraged to see our GP if a child snores or if an adult snoring is affecting aspects of life, such as causing excessive tiredness and poor concentration or relationship problems. And of course, snoring can sometimes indicate a more serious related condition called sleep apnea. Rightly or wrongly, many people, especially men, choose not to bother their GP about snoring. So what self-help measures are available? The simple answer to that is find the cause of the snoring first. When you know the cause of the snoring, the resolutions are very easy. I was interested to see on your website that you offer an interactive snoring test. How does that work? They target the mouth, nose and throat area, which will hopefully determine where that snoring is coming from. And of course, the airway is slightly different when you're asleep to when you're awake. So then what happens? Well, what you do then is you let the website direct you to the suitable treatment. For example, if you've decided that you're a mouth breather and you need something to keep your mouth closed at night, then the website will direct you to the treatments that we recommend for that type of snoring. How do we know if these treatments are going to be able to help? Well, the treatments that we offer are clinically proven and you have to make sure that the sort of treatment that you're looking for is going to work for you. And if you find something that says guaranteed to work, if it doesn't, I'll give you your money back, then don't go near it. You have to look at treatments that have been clinically proven and are known to work. This is Word on Health with Paul Penningson. Every day, 96% of us rely on a very small band of unsung heroes to have given up around an hour of their time to selflessly provide something that can make the difference between life and death for up to three people. From routine operations to treating people living with cancer. Every day, hospitals and clinics across the UK use around 10,000 donations of blood. Research shows over 30% of us would like to give blood but never have. And to ensure there are stocks of all the different blood types, it's important for all sides of our multi-ethnic community to come forward. Ishet Askan from NHS Blood and Transplant joins me on the line. Ishet, talk us through who can and can't give blood. In order to give blood, you need to be aged between 17 and 65, in good general health, and weigh over 50 kilos, which is 7 stone 12 pounds. If you meet that criteria, you should be able to give blood. I know some people are unclear as to what... What might prevent them from giving? If you've got an underlying medical condition, if you're undergoing some kind of medical investigation, then it's possible that you won't be able to donate. But in those instances, we advise people to call our contact centre or look up our website where they can find out more information. Ishet, the process of giving is quite straightforward, isn't it? When you come along to donate, we'll take some details from you, name, address, date of birth. We'll go through a health check with you. We'll check your iron level. So we just take a small drop of blood from your fingertip. And then you stay on a donation bed. It takes about 10 
10 minutes to give your donation, which is 470 millilitres. And once you've done that, you can have a short rest and then go over to our tea area and enjoy our light refreshments. I said in my introduction that you're keen to hear from all sides of our fabulous multicultural society. We're keen to hear from all groups, but certainly we do need younger donors to come forward, become regular donors, coming in two or three times a year, and that way we can maintain healthy stock levels. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's an inflammatory condition of the gastrointestinal tract and it's one of the most common disorders in the UK. As many as one in a hundred people could be living with it. Yet, as TV doctor and celiac disease sufferer Dr Chris Steele explains, it often goes undiagnosed for years. The average age of diagnosis now is 44 years, which really is disgraceful given that you're born with this condition. So you've lived with it for a long, long time. You've got used to feeling tired, you know, and tiredness doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's comes on very very gradually you may lose weight with it you may have diarrhea but you might just have the vague symptoms of tiredness a bit of bloating a bit of excess wind and you don't have to have all those symptoms you just have some of them a lot of these patients have actually been wrongly diagnosed as having irritable bowel syndrome but if you have any of those symptoms you should really go to see a gp there's a blood test we can do and if that blood test indicates that you have this condition you'd be referred to a specialist to confirm the diagnosis. So Chris, what causes celiac disease? The body being very sensitive to a protein called gluten that's in wheat, barley, rye and sometimes oats. Found in bread, biscuits, pasta, pizza, bases, anything really made from flour. Chris, as I said in the introduction, this is a condition that's very close to your heart. It's something that you live with. I know you're leading a campaign to get more of the estimated four out of five sufferers who aren't currently diagnosed recognised and on treatment. Why is this so important? You can get anemia, thinning of the bones, osteoporosis. It can cause infertility in women and even miscarriage in younger women. The frightening thing is you are at increased risk of bowel cancer. So once you've been to your GP and celiac disease has been diagnosed, can we cure it? We can't cure the condition, but the treatment is you have to actually have a gluten-free diet. Now, 96% of patients, when they're change to a gluten-free diet the symptoms have gone but they have to stay on the diet for life this is word on health with paul pennington if caught early testicular cancer has a 98 percent cure rate with men between the ages of 15 and 45 most at risk yet research from male cancer charity orchid has revealed 80 percent of young people are not able to identify that they are in the age group most at risk and three in four young men don't regularly check themselves for the disease robert corns from orchid talks us through the telltale signs that guys need to be looking out for over 90 percent of men will first notice a small painless lump which is attached directly to the testicle. About 20% of men may feel some discomfort, aches or pain in the region, but the majority of men it will be a small painless lump that doesn't go away and is attached directly to the testicle. Robert, I know testicular cancer can happen to any young man, but there are those who have an elevated risk, aren't there? Family history increased the risks. If a father had testicular cancer, the risk to a son is about four or five times greater. If a brother had testicular cancer, that risk is about nine or ten times greater. We also know that having had testicular cancer previously, there's more likelihood that it can reoccur. Poorly functioning testicles or testicles that aren't maintaining proper function may increase the risk. And having had a history of an undescended testicle, although this can be corrected in childhood using a fairly simple surgical procedure, the risk of testicular cancer is still raised and men who are perhaps having fertility problems are slightly more at risk. 
testicular cancer affects over 2,200 men each year. When it comes to self-examination, it really is so important for all young men to have a greater understanding of their anatomy and to check themselves regularly. And if you do detect something, don't bury your head in the sand. Do something about it immediately. The quicker a potential problem like testicular cancer is identified, the quicker it can be treated and the less treatment potentially that will involve. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's a chronic, incurable and thankfully rare disorder that affects the inner ear, which around one in a thousand of us live with. Many ears disease most commonly affects people aged between 20 and 60, and it's thought to be slightly more prevalent in women than in men. And for 7 to 10% of cases, there's a family history. Sarah Christopher is a sufferer and trustee of the patient support charity, the Many Ears Society. Many Ears disease is quite individual, but there's a textbook number of symptoms which are vertigo, tinnitus, progressive hearing loss, feeling of pressure in the ear, like fullness, fluid for example, headaches and feelings of being unsteady on your feet. Each person will have varying level of experiencing these types of symptoms. Sarah, I understand that Meniere's disease often progresses through different stages. Stage one is where the main symptoms at this stage are vertigo. The duration of the attacks can last anywhere from a few minutes to 24 hours. You can have remission periods during this stage. There is some tinnitus and fullness in your ear. Between the attacks, the hearing usually returns to normal. The second stage is what we call the intermediate stage and the vertigo attacks continue. The hearing generally gets worse and the tinnitus becomes more prominent. Then we move to the later stage. The hearing loss increases and often the vertigo attacks will diminish or stop completely. But there's generally permanent damage to the balance organs, so there's more balance problems. The exact cause of Meniere's disease is unknown, but is thought to be caused by a problem with pressure deep inside the ear. It's incurable. What about treatment options? Treatment is generally aimed at reducing or controlling the symptoms. So treatment can range from medication to vestibular treatment, and in other cases you can have surgeries. Other things you can do for yourself if you have Meniere's disease? There's a different range of self-management options. Counselling and relaxation, stress management play an important role. Key point with this is understanding your symptoms and this can take time and experience. So I think you can live with it. It's just how you manage it depending on what level of the condition that you're at. It's really important to have a positive outlook and to remain engaged with society in general. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Ataxia is a non-specific clinical manifestation implying dysfunction of the parts of the nervous system that coordinate movement. This week, the 10,000 or so people, young and old, living with ataxia across the UK are joining forces with fellow sufferers across the world to try and get us all to be more aware. Dr Julie Greenfield from the charity Ataxia UK explains why. People with ataxia are very, very keen for the general public to understand more about ataxia. Because of the types of symptoms that are associated People are quite often accused of being drunk when they're out in the public and then that can be very embarrassing of course and not very pleasant. Other people feel that because of the speech is affected people might feel that their mental capacities are maybe affected as well which mostly is not the case. We do a lot of work to try and increase the understanding of healthcare professionals. If somebody goes to see their GP it's quite likely that GP won't have seen anybody with ataxia before. So Dr Greenfield, ataxia is a symptom? Ataxia is a symptom. So for example multiple sclerosis some people can get ataxia as part of that or you can get ataxia as a result of a stroke. In our case, because it's the main symptom of a group of conditions which are called the progressive ataxia,
behaviours. Those are the ones that Attacks the UK actually focuses on. So who's at risk of developing this symptom? Many of the attacks are actually inherited conditions. So in some cases, it's something that's known within the family. So it might be passed on from the mother or father. In other cases, they're inherited, but it will come out of the blue because parents will be carriers of the condition, but not actually have any symptoms themselves. In other cases, the causes are actually not known, but it's not something you can catch. It's not an infectious disease. Where's the scientific community at in terms of developing effective treatments and a cure for ataxia? We're moving towards getting to the point where there might be some treatments, but there isn't at the moment a cure. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.